Hey Buddha Nation, welcome to the Ecom Show, where we invite e-commerce entrepreneurs, marketers, and agencies to talk about e-commerce, the best strategies and tactics, and what to implement in your own e-com store. Before we jump into this episode, I ask you to subscribe to this podcast, and if you like it, make sure you share it with at least one friend. As you probably know, we don't run ads. Our growth is purely organic, so it would mean the world to me if you could support us. And now let's jump into the episode. Hey everyone, here is Daniel Budai and this is a new episode of the Ecom Show. And this is a special episode because this is the 250th episode. Today we are not having a guest, but rather I want to reflect into the past and we recorded more than 150 hours of audio and video together. We share those on social as well. Some of them are on YouTube and most importantly, they are on the major podcasting platforms. The podcast was started back in 2020, just after COVID broke out. And this was back then my first media channel that I wanted to use to provide some value, some information and give back something to the community. I didn't have my newsletter back then and my uh, company didn't have the YouTube channel back then. So podcast was really the first thing that I started doing. I remember how dummy I was. (laughs) And actually, I asked our video editor to find the very first episode and just put a small part here. So yeah, let me just play this this section from that very first episode for you. Hey everyone, this is Daniel Budai and this is the Ecom Show. This is the very first episode of our new podcast and please uh, welcome Ben Erdey, who is our senior account manager in our team. He's been in the trenches with with the team and with our clients for, uh, for almost two years. Hey Ben, please uh, tell me, tell us more about uh, yourself and how how you ended up in this team and and what you do uh, in our team. If you could tell us uh, in a few words, uh, I think the listeners would really appreciate that. Hey guys, it's uh, glad to, glad to be here. Um, yeah, I'm honored to be the uh, first participant and um yeah so i'm as daniel said i'm senior account manager at the moment at the company and uh yeah i've been working here for almost two years now which is crazy so Uh, why i really like this uh almost four year journey because this was enough time to see different business cycles and i know there are many guys out there who are just starting out their marketing journey or e-commerce journey and they just started out this year or last year. And I don't say that I'm an industry veteran, but I started back in 2017, my online marketing career. And I started this podcast back in 2020. So since then COVID happened. And then I think last year, 2023, wasn't as a huge success for the D2C community in general. So we could see different cycles and I'm pretty sure we will see more. So now i want to share 11 takeaways big takeaways that i learned from some of our best guests and let me share those one by one i guess this will be a quite long episode but let's jump into the first one so i will fly back to 2020 where i interviewed aaron coot and he's one of the founders of bossell bossell is an australian watch company This was founded by Aaron and his co-founder. He used to work for one of the major Swiss watch manufacturers. So they launched this company, Bossell, and they really believe in strategic partnerships with influencers. And unlike most e-commerce companies, they don't want to have only a commercial relationship and marketing relationship with influencers to promote their products, but they really strive for authenticity when it comes to business relationships and sharing core values. And now I let him share his approach, how they uh, work with influencers. Well, 
I have a secret weapon here, and that's my wife. Um, she's my she's my business partner in in quite a lot of things, and she's uh, she's a brand ambassador. Oh, sorry, not brand ambassador. The I guess the um, the head of brand for Bossell. She's also on the board of Bossell. Now her background is in celebrity endorsements, so she she used to be an actor's agent. So she has a very very serious network here in the US um, of celebrities and also she her job when she was young as a as an actor sorry as a brand member sorry as a celebrity endorsement specialist was putting deals together so she's very creative and she understands both sides because she used to be an actor's agent so she understands the the company side she understands the actor's needs the the brand's needs and the agency's needs so mm-hmm. it's very easy for her to put together a deal that is that makes everybody happy so, look, Dominic Purcell, to be honest, he, he works for us for next to nothing. Um, my wife, Rebecca, put together a, a great deal and, and he um, he's Australian. So he wanted to support an Australian brand and mm-hmm. uh, we're very lucky that he, like, he does so much above and beyond for us that, you know, because he loves the brand, um, he it just really fits with the lifestyle that he likes to live. So... Mm-hmm. It's um, yeah. There are there are different ways. I mean, you can give you can give equity. Um, it depends on you. You can you can do a deal or like an endorsement deal where you do a, a specific product attached to them and they get royalties for it. Um, so there are lots of different ways to to um, you know to, to skin the deal. But it, it yeah. really just depends on the company, on your cash flow, on the on the connection with. The celebrity or the ambassador, um, and how you how you feel about having um, a smaller piece of a bigger pie. Yeah, um, yeah. Like two hours ago, I just had a call with one of our team members, and uh, we talked about influencer marketing for one hour. Um, may, I, I think we will add this service uh, to to our services uh, in the future. And, um, and, you know, if um, the, the influencer has an emotional attachment to your brand and what you represent, and as you said, this guy, is also, he's also from Australia, then it's much easier, it's much more genuine, and also the creative will be much uh, more high quality. We checked a few Instagram profiles uh, we checked a few good and bad examples, and the bad examples, those influencers, they promoted something every day, um, and I think they promote like three hundred different brands in in one year. That's that's terrible. And 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 the caption was uh, something like uh, get twenty percent discount today. Um, these are our packages, and even the packages were in the caption. Like yeah. it was like a product page on Instagram. So I'll tell you right now, don't waste your money on those type of things. Yeah. So look, the, the thing with the difference between celebrities and influencers is that people like a celebrity, um, the, the audience that like a celebrity are very broad because they watch their movies over the years and they play many different characters. So people like them as a different character. And then they go, I loved you in that. And then they start following you from one movie and then they're different people from all walks of life. But mm-hmm. some of the influencers, like a generic influencer on, on Instagram, it's, their audience is not it is very similar. But with a, a targeted niche audience, like say, for instance, a beauty influencer um, or people who do a, you know the tutorials on YouTube, um, their audience is very specific beauty or very specific watch industry or if you find the right ones and partner with them you know on a on a deal where they can they can speak authentically um, yeah. it has to be authentic otherwise it's, it's nonsense like the people you just talked about that would you know promoting a different product every day it's you know no one cares anymore the audiences social media don't want to be ad- well, people on social media don't want to be advertised to anymore 
They don't want to see you with your a new product every day. They want to see something that you care about and connect with, and they want to know if they can connect with it too. And it has to be an authentic emotional connection. Yeah, yeah. Um, at all costs. So we partnered with a, a beauty influencer um, with our previous company, and mm-hmm. she has she does tutorials on YouTube, and she like she has two and a half million followers on YouTube, and. She'd always been doing endorsements for different companies, um, but always paid endorsements and always, you know, have to say now, you know, paid paid partnership with X, Y, or Z. But she was able to stand up in front of the camera and say, hey, this is the first time I've ever done this before, but I'm a part of this company. We talked to her a few times and when we were, when we were setting up the brand and getting ready to launch and she said, hey, I really love this product. And she asked us, she said, is there any room for me? Because um, we were just using her as a consultant to test our product and to get it right when we we're in the research and development phase. And then she asked if there was any opportunity to be involved. And then that started us thinking, look, we'd love to have you involved. Um, let's you know, come up with a deal. And then my wife, Rebecca, she she was the one to put the deal together, obviously, because um, that's her specialty. And I like to let the experts be the experts. I don't need to know everything or run everything. Um, and then she came up with something amazing. So for the first time, she, that influencer was able to stand up in front of the camera and say, hey, I actually own part of this company. This is my company. And mm-hmm. I'm involved in it because I love it. I'm not just standing up and saying, hey, here's this, you know, here's this great product. You should try it because I'm doing, you know, I'm endorsing this company because they're paying me. I'm actually part of this. And mm-hmm. the the response from people were, was incredible because it was real, authentic, and in a serious emotional connection. Mm-hmm. And we would have, we then built a, a following of, thousands of people, thousands of loyal followers who would do our marketing for us. They would then start going out and saying, hey, you know, you've got to check out this new brand that X has started and or, you know, and if we would have customer service or anyone would complain or ask a question on Instagram or Facebook, our followers would jump on and answer the question for us because they felt it was authentic. They felt like they were one of us. And that's the goal, I believe, in social media is to make people feel that they're part of your team. It's not just you to them. You have to really connect with them and get them to want to be part of it. And then once they are part of it and they feel it's real, they become your best ambassadors. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's a great story. Yeah. No, no, you go. Yeah, it's a great story. I think not many business owners would be fine uh, to you know, give equity to, to someone, to, to, that's um, celebrity influencer. That's, that's the difference though, because in, it depends on where you want to go. Like in your, like if, if you are serious about growing a global brand, um, you need to be prepared to pay for that audience. Now that audience of two and a half million people, you either have to give equity or you have to have the funds to do it. So, you can push and push and push and pay-per-click, pay-per-click, pay-per-click. Now, what, how much would you have had to spend to get access or to actually reach the same audience that we were able to reach in the space of a couple of weeks or a month and then bring them all on board in, an, in such an authentic way? How much would you have had to spend um, in digital advertising to achieve that? I don't think you could have achieved, I don't think you could have achieved it. And again, I go back to, People always want a bigger, sorry, yeah, a bigger piece of a smaller pie. Now, I would always, as an entrepreneur, in the early days, I wanted, I wanted the whole pie to myself. But yeah. as I've learned over the years, I'm nearly fifty now, and I've been in this for this game for twenty five years. Um, it doesn't work that way. I mean, it does work that way, but way less often. And if if you are, it's. I mean, I'm talking strategic partners. You never give equity to anyone just for the sake of you know. Are you going to? They're going to help you, but a strategic equity deal can take you to the next level and accelerate your growth so fast compared to because it's authentic. You can't buy authentic any anymore. It needs to be because the people on social media are so so much smarter these days. They're so much better educated. Everybody knows how it works and. One of the, the most recent, um, I think, like digital media reports is that um, 85% of people won't click on an ad. 
in Google. You know, and only only fifteen percent of people will. So, mm-hmm. you know, where are you spending your money, and and how? You can do it the hard way and push it, or you can, you know, take some risks and bring some solid partners into the team. You know, for me, I'm always I'm always one team, one dream. I'm not, you know, I don't like doing things on my own. It gets lonely. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And if, you're surrounding, to- yourself, <clears throat> if you're surrounding yourself with best in class people, then you know you get best in class results. So after Aaron, the next one will be from episode 36. This is still in uh, 2020 and this was in Q4. So this was uh, just right before Black Friday. So we had a webinar with some of the major CEOs and marketers on the US market. And I had the luck to interview Andrew Huberman, the CEO of Hoke Media as well. And he talked about 2020, which was a very interesting year. And as he will say, ad costs skyrocketed by 50%, 50% in that year. Why I'm sharing this? Because this year, 2024, will be also an election year in the US, just like four years ago. And in those years, we can see ad costs uh, increasing and also channels, own marketing channels such as email or SMS becoming more and more important. All big brands pulled out of advertising, they freaked out, etc. So advertising costs actually dropped 30% while the market share actually doubled. Again, 13 to 30, over doubled in terms of market share. Then uh, Q3 hits, uh, people are allowed to go outside a little bit more. Summer's around, COVID seems to have subsided a little bit. It drops down to 27%. I haven't seen the updates uh, for Q4 yet and what's actually happened, but it was close. It was the biggest Black Friday, Cyber Monday we've ever seen. And I heard mentioned about like people pulling back on ad spends. That was anecdotal, like tiny amounts of companies. Yes, it's an individualized strategy, but f- across the board, it was the biggest, most spending ever done during that holiday season. Um, on top of that, we saw... With ad prices, they went down 30%. They kind of recovered in Q3, but by Q4 in October, you had the elections, which actually increased advertising costs 50% in just the month of October because 50% of advertising was actually being spent on politics in October of this year in the United States. Um, And then you hit November with the holidays, so it really skyrocketed. It subsided a little bit in December. January has been a great month for advertising. We're seeing great returns, but I do believe what we're going to see as far as growth this year. um, Now... All the big CPG companies, the big automotive companies, et cetera, they're the ones that make it expensive to advertise because they spend tons of money because their job is just to make sure that when you go to pick a car, you go to pick a a toilet paper, you pick theirs over someone else's. Whereas a lot of the companies we all work with, Clavio works with that really benefit from us are very performance driven. They need to know that they spend a dollar and make four or five or whatever that number is. And they're looking at the actual direct ROI versus just the market share. And so until you get to that scale, that sort of nine, 10 figure revenue kind of scale, spending marketing dollars on market share is too expensive. It's really hard to do. It's not that sustainable. And so when those big companies come in and start competing that way, it drives the costs up in a way that's hard to sustain. And so what we think is going to happen in 2021, which is music to Clavio's ears, and Andrew and I talked about this, is advertising costs are going to skyrocket, which means your owned marketing is going to have to be much more important, meaning a lot of uh, what Ali was talking about, focusing on conversion, making sure that your conversion rate goes up. And, you know, email and SMS are incredible ways to do that, as well as branded content, as well as a lot of different trust factors like PR, et cetera, that help people feel like they convert, as well as uh, continuing to follow up and increase that lifetime value. These tools are also great for that, whether it's SMS, email, chatbots, these are all really good tools to increase lifetime value and keep that relationship with your customer. But the thing like from a marketing perspective, those are all great. The most important thing is merchandising. You have to have products and services that allow people to keep spending with you as they grow their affinity for you. If they like your brand, if you deliver on your product or service and you're a good company, you need to give them other ways to spend money with you. And that is critical as it gets more and more expensive to acquire customers, you've got to make more money off of them. So higher conversion, higher lifetime value, and everything that drives that is going to be important this year. And I think it's going to be actually in a way fun because we're going to see really great brands that are operated really well kind of rise to the top. And you're going to see brands that shouldn't exist. You saw it last year. There's a lot of companies that failed and you look at it and it's like, yeah, they needed to fail. 
there's a lot of e-commerce companies that failed last year. And it was like, sorry, as we just talked about with the stats, there's no excuse. COVID didn't hurt e-commerce companies. It hurt bad companies in that sense, because people were more critical of what they were spending their money on. And so, um, you know, I saw, I'm not going to call them out, but I did see a lingerie company lay off like a third of their staff in Q2 last year. We, we work with a lot of lingerie companies. It was skyrocketing and, you know, not to be too crass, but like, People were stuck at home. Lingerie sales jumped really high because people needed something to do. Um, so to see that, it was actually an operational problem on the individual company, not a COVID thing. So I think we're going to see the same thing this year where people are going to have to be really good at what they do to survive because I think we haven't seen the economic hit of COVID yet. I think we've seen the, the companies that were shut down saw it, but as a, a, a more like holistic economy, we haven't seen it yet. And so the rise of advertising costs is going to come in as well as I think people will pull back. Because one other thing that's a really important factor as to why last year went so well for e-commerce is the stimulus. Companies didn't have to lay off people. So most white collar workers kept their jobs. When we see the unemployment when it was at its highest, those were restaurant workers. Those were people that don't have a lot of discretionary income. And most e-commerce companies are not built for the lower market and for the blue collar workers. It's built for white collar people that all kept their jobs. And if you made under 75 a year, you also got a random check for $1,200 and then another one for 600. And we saw this, like the moment those checks hit, people spend them. It's actually a, like it's a known quantity that the middle class spends 110% of their income. So you give them $1,200, they spend $1,320. Like that is how this works. And so we saw that. So that was another really big part that as that goes away, it'll be interesting to see what comes next. The third section will be from episode 62. And this is from the CEO and the, one of the founders of Bloomreach. Raj Data, and also he's an author and his book is Serve the Seeker. So he will share a story about one, one of their clients, Bayern Munich, Bayern München, the famous football club uh, that Bloomreach, his company, works with and also what this serves the seeker mentality really means. Raj is a great person and uh, he's probably one of the wealthiest guests that I had in my podcast. So yeah, let me share that section here as well. Yeah, you know, I mean, we can use some examples to talk to make it very real. So if you if you, you know, to use one of one of the Bloomreach clients, which which is in Europe, which is Bayern Munich, the, the football club that many, mm-hmm. many of us know, you know, we started working with Bayern Munich and they were we think of them as a as a football club from from uh, Bavaria. But um, you know, what they realize is that their fan base is global. And really, in many ways, what their fans, they may be interested in buying jerseys or attending games, but actually what they're interested in is living with, with the team every day and every, every waking minute. And that's really what they're interested in. And so they build so much virtual reality capabilities, a hackathon, a rich website, and the ability to participate in a game and have augmented reality to buy a jersey of your favorite player as a part of that experience, even if you're in New York, to feel like you're in um, in the stadium yourself. And so they recognize that that's really what the fan is seeking, not just okay, you know, tell me the news of whether or not the team won the game or not. Uh, yeah. And they've, they've they've succeeded digitally in a way that that has been, you know, very profound. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. So let's uh, start talking about Bloomreach. Uh, when was the company founded? The company was founded in 2009. So it's, it's been around now for 12 years. Um, and it's been a fantastic journey to gradually build the platform that powers digital experiences across e-commerce. And we think of what Bloomreach is as an e-commerce experience platform, because in many ways, e-commerce is a 20-year-old industry at this point. Yeah. And so the first 20 years, what has been happening? People have basically been putting up storefronts. Okay, now my brand, you can buy it online. That has been the story of e-commerce. And we've seen great software platforms, including one that went public today, Vtex, that, uh, that do that and do a great job of getting people online and enabling people you know, to build storefronts. But just because I build an e-commerce store doesn't mean anybody's going to come and shop with me. They could just as well go to Amazon or some other property to go buy. So Bloomreach is about helping the e-commerce brand stand out and capture incremental growth on top of the property that they have by delivering a highly unique personalized experience so that it's memorable and it's more likely that people will come back and shop more. 
Okay, and what are those features that can uh, enable this very customized, personalized experience? Maybe yeah. a few, if you can name them. So we have, we have three core, um, what we call pillars of the platform. The first is engagement, which is marketing software and personalized customer data platform to enable somebody to run personalized marketing campaign so that every email interaction, every SMS, every ad copy is highly personalized. Um, and because it's built off of a customer platform, customer data platform. And that's the first part. That's to engage somebody to the brand. Then a great content platform, because once you've engaged the customer and they've come into the website, then you want to inspire them to buy. So we have a great content platform that is very tuned into e-commerce that enables somebody to say, okay, this is an inspirational view of your sofa in a living room or other such things or other video assets or manuals in a B2B commerce sense. And then finally, the third part of the platform is what we call discovery, which is now I've decided to buy the sofa or the dress, help me find the right one. And so it includes great search technology, great uh, navigation and merchandising technology to guide me to exactly the right product. Those are the three parts of the platform. Mm -hmm. The next clip is from episode 68, where I talked to the former CEO of Harmon Brothers, Benton Crane. And we discussed how many videos, video assets a brand really needs. This was back in 2021, but I think this still applies. And we also shortly mentioned TV versus direct response online advertising and the main differences and the mindsets and how this changed over the years. And also he will share an interesting story about a mid-nine figure sleepwear company that failed to build a brand yeah, in I the think long run. There was a time, you know, back in call it like 2015, 2016, around that time when you could just do one hero video uh -huh. and just drive millions and millions and millions of views to that one hero video. And that's what we yeah. did for, you know, Poopery and Squatty uh -huh. Potty, probably even chat books to, to some mm -hmm. degree. Um, but now you really need a portfolio of content. Uh -huh. So just like you said, you know, you have your hero um, and then you do all these cut downs. Um, then you also do, you know, we call it, we call them sidekick videos, but you do all of these um, videos that, you know, help to build the story and build the characters and that sort of thing. Uh, but they're all themed around, uh, around the hero video. And by building up this portfolio of content, uh -huh. uh, that that's kind of the, the magic uh, recipe that we found really works today. Yeah. And uh, for what channels do you create videos? So I know on the website, uh, I remember click, the ClickFunnels video was on the landing page, I think. Uh, probably YouTube, I guess. It's good for longer format. And, and how about other channels? Facebook, maybe even TikTok, Instagram? Yeah, we, we haven't found a ton of instances where... Um, where advertising on TikTok has, uh, um, I guess, produced a, an immediate ROI for our clients. I think you could argue that, you know, there's a lot of long-term ROI that, that could be garnered there, uh, but we haven't seen a lot of immediate ROI there. Uh, mm -hmm. So I would say the main channels would be uh, Facebook and Instagram, of course, YouTube, and then surprisingly enough, traditional TV is making a big resurgence um, not in terms of viewership, but in terms of underpriced attention. Okay. Uh, so it, it's kind of funny because you, you go back to 2016 and TV was all overpriced and you could come to Facebook and get and buy really undervalued attention. Um, but now all the big brands have gone digital and they've kind of left this void back in traditional TV. And so now we're finding all sorts of instances where we'll take our content, we'll help our we'll help our clients test it online to figure out which is the variation that works best, and then once they identify it, they take that offline, go back to traditional TV, and some of our clients are just getting phenomenal ROI back in the the traditional space. It's kind of funny how that works. Yeah, yeah, it's really interesting, um, but. I guess it's harder to test with TV. So as you said, first they need to experiment things uh, online. It's faster. It's easier to measure things. And once you have something working, 
and it's kind of a safe bet. You can uh, put it on TV and, uh, and you know, you get the ROI. It's really interesting. Um, yeah, that's exactly right. I could see on your website. So let's talk about Harmon Brothers more. Uh, I can, I could see the university on your website and uh, mm-hmm. I'm really curious what it is about, what we can learn from the university. Yeah. So I, I referenced that poop to gold journey Yeah, where, you know, all of us entrepreneurs start in obscurity and we're all trying to become household names. And when we're at the beginning of that poop to gold journey, it's really important that we focus on sales. We need to be very direct sales oriented mm-hmm. because we need to spend a dollar and get $2 back. That's what's going to allow us to, you know, uh, pay our employees, pay our bills, keep the lights on, all of that sort of thing. But if we stay in that world where we only care about sales, we're going to have a very short lived, uh, uh, I guess um, our success will be very short lived. I'll, I'll put yeah. it that way. Yeah. The example that I use is uh, Snuggy, uh, Snuggy blankets. Um, I don't know where most of your audience um, is. They're probably all over the world. Uh, but in America, about 20 years ago, there was an infomercial that ran for these Snuggy blankets. It's like this big blanket that has sleeves, so you can put it over yourself, and then it has these sleeves, and then it stays on. And this infomercial sold something between 300 and $500 million worth of these snuggy blankets. Like it was a massive, massive success. But the crazy thing is despite selling, you know, potentially $500 million worth of these things, they never bothered to build a brand. And so they had like this three to four year window where they just made enormous amounts of money And then they faded into obscurity and now we're 15 or 20 years later. And, you know, my kids have never heard of Snuggie yeah. and you can't find Snuggie in any stores or, or anything. So Snuggie is just gone. And, and that's because they stayed in that, in that world of just focusing on direct sales and they never bothered to build a brand. The next clip is from episode 99, where I interviewed Kale Oven. And he just became the CEO of Gym Lunch, Alex Hormozy's company. And I had the luck to interview him back then. And I had a very simple question to him. So how to find people to be promoted in the team? And he gave me a very interesting response that I really loved. And let me share that with you guys here. When they start pulling things off of the plate of the person above them, and they start just taking things from them without asking, mm-hmm and start doing it, that's when this person is in a place where they're ready to take the next step and become really take on more responsibility. Most people, in my opinion, they wait for people to ask them to do things. And they're not sure. Sometimes people are fearful. There's a fear part of that where it's like, I don't want to mess up. So I don't want to take this chance and potentially mess something up. And then there's the other side of people just simply sit in their bubble and they don't think about growth and wanting to do more. But thankfully, like our team has been built on, hey, if you we're like America, When you come to America, right, the American story is like you got to make your own way. If you make it and you do well and all this stuff, you're going to grow. It's the same thing in our company. We don't have a, a typical corporate growth track. If you want to make your way up in the company, you have to literally create it. And that's what I did. I created places where I could go. And I was also given incredible opportunities um, to be able to do that. But it's the same for so many people in our company. I mean, I think of our, our director of client coaching. I think of Ed, who is our director, Ed Turney, who's our director of affiliate growth, like all of these individuals. And there's so many countless people who have grown in this company just by simply looking at the people above them, looking at what are they doing on a daily basis and without saying anything, starting to take things off of their plate and making sure that they can do it extremely well. Yeah, that's a really good point. So basically they start doing the job of their managers or, or somebody else because they are hungry to grow and uh, take uh-huh. responsibility. And On the contrary, if they don't do it or they just do their thing and that's it, they can be still a good employee, I think. You know, there is a limit there. So there's yeah. a limitation. How Absolutely. Much grow. Yeah. yeah, that's a great point. I think some people are interested in growth and some people, frankly, it's not something they like to clock in. They like to do their work exceptionally well. Right. But then they're not looking to take that next step. And we have employees like that who are phenomenal at their job and who I frankly, this business would not be able to run without them. And they're in a position where, hey, you know, I like what I do. I have no interest in moving to the next step or being a manager or managing teams. Or maybe they've done that in the past and they're like, I don't really want to do that again. But they're exceptional at what they do. And that's cool. 
when you are in the hiring process, can you see these signs already? Uh, can you catch these signs that this person is somebody who is really hungry for growth or it's hard? It's hard, personally. I would also say I don't have as much. I've interviewed a lot of people and I've gone through the hiring process a lot. I've messed up a lot. And so I'm nowhere near what maybe some people listening to this podcast are in positions um, in regards to hiring and firing and all that stuff. I'm no by no means an expert. It's one of the skill sets I'm trying to get better at. However, I don't believe you can really see that in an interview because you're seeing someone's best. And that's the best typically you're going to see unless you really invest in that person and really bring that out of them and really invest both in their personal development and their professional development to make sure that you're aligned with them. So the things that we look for are more so of, do they want to grow? Do they have a desire to grow? Are they willing to tell the truth? Most people in interview processes, um, they want to show their best part. And are yeah. they willing to say, yeah. you know, I suck at something and that they're willing to learn. And then are they willing to take feedback? Um, those are some of the things that we're looking for. And then also I'm a big team player. Uh, I grew up playing team sports. This is something that we as a company are really focusing on as a culture is making sure with lots of different departments that we have and two different companies that we're managing, we as a team is a really big piece of what we're looking for. And so when, when we are looking to bring people on, we're also looking for that terminology. Are they using the words I a lot? Are they looking, are they using the terminology of like we, what we can do? Yeah, that's what I look for a lot. Like we have managers on the team that I work with consistently from a terminology standpoint where they're like my team. And it's like, that's not your team. That's our team. This is, we're all in this together. It's not my company. That's not Alex and Layla's company, right? It's a we, like it's our company. Like as a team, this is our job to go out and provide an exceptional experience and exceptional products for our clients. Okay, so after Kale, the next one will be Ezra Firestone. And he has multiple companies. He's well known in the e-commerce community. And he's one of the owners of uh, Boom by Cindy Joseph and he also runs other businesses, Smart Marketer, and uh, Zipify is another uh, company of him. We will uh, discuss why he thinks that building an asset, an e-commerce company as an asset, is the best way to build your wealth in the long run, instead of a cash flow business or any kind of other businesses. But the idea is, you know, once you've reached a certain level of success, it's a lot easier to buy assets than it is to build them. Building is hard. Building takes a long time. And, you know, money is generally made in decade cycles, like real wealth, real true wealth takes about 10 years. You know, you might buy a business and grow it and sell it. You might build a business and then sell it. But you're going to make true wealth does not come from cash flow. It doesn't come from having a job and making some cash. It doesn't come from building a business and pulling cash out of the business. True wealth comes from asset liquidation. And if you look at like the baby boomer generation, what they did was they took the money from their 401ks and their jobs, those were their cash flow vehicles, and they invested that in real estate asset. And then they let that asset appreciate over 20 or 30 years. And then they sold the asset later for a meaningful amount of money. That's true wealth generation. So from a business perspective, if you're not building your business to one day sell it, you're missing out on 80 or 90% of the money that could be made in that business. The business itself is the asset and selling it is where you generate that true wealth. Or you have a business like yours, maybe you don't intend to sell it, although you can sell an agency. If you're kicking off cash flow, you take that money and you invest it in assets, either buying businesses, building businesses, buying real estate, whatever. But your true wealth is going to come from buying assets and then giving those assets time to appreciate or optimizing those assets so that they appreciate quickly, which is what I do with businesses. I buy businesses that I think are stressed or under-optimized, and then I make them better, and then I sell them because that's a much quicker vehicle to wealth creation. I mean, how old are you? 30. You're 30. So how much longer are you going to be doing this at this pace? 15 years, 20 years till you're 50? I certainly am not. I'm 35. I'm not going to work at this pace for much longer. I've got, you know, building a family. I got stuff I'm doing. I enjoy my work. It's really fun. But at the end of the day, I'm engaging in work to produce resource that I can use to take care of my family, support my community, and then use towards causes in the world that I find noble, that I want to support. I'm not in business just to be in business. I'm in business to generate resource so I can fucking use that resource towards good things. So I want to do that as quick as I can. And so I got like 15 years. If I only have 15 years left at this pace, which is definitely the longest I have at this pace, and I need to make $100 million, which is about what I want to make, post-tax money, by the way, not pre-tax money. So that's like 200 million I need to pay myself. Yeah. I'm not going to get there through cash flow businesses. I'm going to get there through asset liquidation. And I'm not going to get there through building assets because I don't have the time to build the businesses because it takes forever. I'm about to sell a percentage of my company, Zipify. I've been working on that company since 2014. I'm eight years into it. 
if, okay, if I'm going to build companies and it takes me eight years to get them to maturity where I can sell them, why am I going to build two more companies in the next 16 years or four? It's like, you have to buy assets at a certain point. If you're, by the way, not everybody's goal is wealth creation or massive wealth creation. I'm not even saying that's a goal that you should have, but if it is one- Most people, they don't have it actually. Yeah, no worries. All this, you know, it's not like this is the righteous path that everybody needs to follow. No, hey, this is one path. And it's a path that I am interested in because I want to do things in the world that require massive amounts of resource. And so in order to get there, the path is buy assets, optimize them so that they appreciate and sell them. And now the next episode I will share is with Brian Kurtz. He's the dinosaur of direct response marketing, but he's not really a dinosaur. He's rather a legend, I would say. And uh, he's, the, he's the author of Over Deliver. He used to work with people like uh, Eugene Schwartz, he talks to Dan Kennedy regularly. So I was really, you know, over the moon that I could actually interview him in my podcast. And in this section, he will talk about RFM segmentation and why it's important, not only in email marketing, but in direct response marketing at all. Yeah, I think, I think though, that, you know, don't, Every all, all data is important. So the person that bought one product for $500 two years ago may not be a current VIP, but there's someone you want to keep marketing to. There's someone that you want to find the sweet spot for that second or third product to them. But you're absolutely right. If, if, they, if you can combine recency, frequency, and monetary, that's, your, that's the top of the pyramid. Everything else comes down. But yeah. someone who spends money and big money is still a worthwhile. Like you can downsell too. Like like in my mastermind. So I have a twenty thousand dollar mastermind. So someone comes in at the twenty thousand dollar mastermind and then they leave. Um, I can sell them my two thousand dollar mastermind and they can stay in my world uh, at yeah. a lower price. But they're still a, a VIP and a valuable customer. So there's so many ways to swing that. But all I can tell you is that when we were doing direct mail in the millions and millions of names when I was at Boardroom in the 80s and 90s, we used to do what we call regression modeling on our house list. So we had house customers. We had 2 million names or so. And what we did was we we actually segmented those names through a statistician on the computer. It wasn't done by hand, but it was always RFM, the, the highest RFM scores were always at the top of the pyramid. They were the names that got mailed the most. They were the names that responded the most. And so this, is, this isn't like just instinct. This isn't like just from your gut. The numbers tell you what to do and where to go. And, you know, going back to email marketing, you know, direct mail was so expensive with postage and printing. Email is so, is so much less expensive. And it, it, it basically, um, when you say a VIP customer, you know, I know so many people that have an email list and they mail everything that they have to the whole list all the time. And the idea of segmenting the list by by multi-buyers, by high ticket buyers, by high ticket multi-buyers, every one of them would have different messaging and it's inexpensive to segment and it's inexpensive to send multiple emails to the same audience. And so, you know, the idea of one size fits all email is really such a huge error in in that a lot of marketers make. They still make money, you know, they still do okay, but they could do so much better with with good list segmentation. And now I will talk to an e-commerce business founder again, so Eric Bantholz, and uh, he's the founder of uh, Beard Brand. And why I like him because he built a strong business based on uh, organic marketing, unlike most e-commerce businesses. He relied mostly on YouTube and uh, he rejected selling on Amazon for long years. So this guy really has a vision and he really, he really has a community. So he was one of the best people to talk about uh, community building, how to launch a community and how to make this strong. So yeah, let's jump into it and let's see what Eric says about building a strong community yeah so first of all i think you need to kind of set your expectations for what community is um it can mean a lot of different things i think traditionally as a longtime internet user 
I think of community as like a private forums or a Slack channel or, you know, some kind of like digitally physical, you know, community. But it's more than that. I think it's the the people who reply to your emails. It's the people who reply to your comments on YouTube or social media or Facebook. It's, uh, you know, the people you run to in, in person. It's the people who come by our, our barbershop uh, right across the street. That is our community. So um, it, it doesn't necessarily have to be this like um, traditional community in the sense and I think like to, to build community essentially means to build a relationship with your, your, your audience. So that's what you're looking to do is like, how can I build a relationship with the people who are using the products? A lot of people, it's very transactional. Like I just um, bought some car parts for my car. I have no care what brand I bought it from, where it's come from. I just want the products. I want it to come in. I'm not building a lifestyle for that. But, you know, to a certain degree, if you have a product that becomes a part of, of, of a person's life, uh, like grooming, uh, I think is because it's part of your daily routine. It's something you, you get on a recurring basis. Then it's very much something you can build a community around. So the first thing is understanding if your product and your company can be a community builder or should it, or should it not? It really depends. And then from there, fostering those relationships and, uh, and then doing things that are not profitable. Um, so we put on events, uh, in person here in Austin that allow, uh, you know, our, our most passionate fans to be able to connect and, and meet in person and connect with other like-minded people. And, you know, creating content on YouTube is not necessarily profitable. Like it's a very expensive time consuming thing, but it's something that brings a lot of value to people's minds. So not being afraid to do things that that may not ever return or if they do return it takes a long period of time and then uh yeah i mean just you've got to um i i think like community builders tend to build products that they're very passionate about so you can't in my opinion necessarily find success as the the low-cost cheap product because i think people who are passionate about the products they're buying tend to want quality. So, uh, developing products that are higher quality and, and can kind of stand, uh, above, uh, the competitors in the space. Yeah. For example, I never heard about Walmart community or Tesco community, you know, you just mentioned the price because it's obviously not above the market and the competitors in quality. So I think that's a good yeah. point. You but should. then you think like Tesla, you know, at a huge scale, mm -hmm. like they've got a great community and uh, very yeah. loyal fans. And, and again, there's no, I mean, as far as I know, there's no like Tesla group, but there are like private blogs who talk about Tesla and, you know, so there's just like different iterations of how that community can exist. Yeah. Yeah. I know Ferrari has many clubs, for example, mm -hmm. uh, and sports car people, but not Tesla. Maybe they will have at some point. I don't know. Yeah. yeah, but, but there's, there's no right or wrong way to build the community. And that's kind of the fun and doing mm -hmm. it as well. You can work through, um, influencers, like maybe you don't want to build uh, your own YouTube channel cause you don't feel comfortable on camera, but you can work with people who are passionate about your products and kind of make them one of the, the faces of the brand and kind of build through them. So there's a lot of different ways of doing it. You just have to really think about how can our company build a long lasting relationship with our audience. That, that's the goal. Yeah. yeah. So how did the, the iOS changes affect your company? Is it something that really affected you or naturally? I don't know how Facebook heavy you are because you have YouTube, you have the community, different places. How did you? Yeah, we're uh, tr traditionally, we, we lean on organic as a primary driver to our sales. So YouTube and our blog, uh, and then driving people into our email flows is is an important part of way of of how we've been able to acquire customers. But uh, we did uh, we did lean on Facebook for a period of time where we were investing heavily into it, and then uh, unfortunately we lost our growth marketer a couple of years ago, and uh, he was the one who was really driving uh, the growth on on Facebook. So I would say losing him was more of an effect than iOS, but um, not having that. The, the eyes in the company um, definitely, I think, caused the ads to be less profitable than 
then would allow them to be, uh, they weren't sustainably profitable. So we ended up actually cutting all of our ads uh, November of last year. And uh, so we haven't been doing any paid social for uh, nearly a year. And, and again, like Amazon, you know, if I can find the right people, we'll get back on that, that train. I, I think there's uh, things that we can do to improve. And I think there's a lot of opportunities, but we're in the midst of uh, relaunching our product lines and new packaging and new sizing. So it doesn't really make a sense to invest a ton in marketing when we're going to be changing everything over the next three months. The next episode will be 197, the new and best way to run ads and acquisition. So I talked to Molly Pittman and he runs Smart Marketer and uh, her agency together with Ezra Firestone, who I also interviewed uh, before. And uh, I met Molly Pittman uh, in the US a few weeks before we had this interview. Um, and yeah, she's just absolutely a marketing genius. And she will share what really worked in 2023, but it still works in 24. So open your ears and listen to Molly. Okay, I'll just sort of go in my mode and rattle off what we're doing right now. Um, and I will, I do want to touch a little bit on information because I've, I know that we are at a crossroads right now where the businesses we are seeing have the most success are not e-com businesses. They're not information businesses. They are both like our biggest client right now uses information on the front end and then sells physical products on the back end. So I want you guys to start thinking in that way, because I think that's the future, at least if you're looking for, for scale. I mean, this will be probably a $60 million brand this year. They just started it three years ago. And the key is simply that we use information on the front end. So I just want to make that, that clear for everybody, but if I'm just looking at a pure e-com business and let's say this is a business spending over five to $10,000 a day on Facebook ads. The, the funnel setup or the offer structure in that account usually looks like this. First, it's what we call butter chicken, which is just straight to the product page. <laughs> Ezra named that. <laughs> so we're still doing that, right? Taking your best-selling products, running direct to product page. There will always be a time and place for that. We're also setting aside budget for lead gen, but we're doing cohort analysis every month to make sure that those leads are profitable, setting a lead cop, you know, uh, what is our cap there? You know, we're not just spending to spend, but that's important no matter your business, building that email list, but making sure that you have follow-up there. Pre-sell articles are old school, but they still work, guys. This is where we're getting a lot of the scale for most of our e-com clients especially a product that's what we call a product-centric business, where it's a product that can be sold to multiple avatars for different reasons. Pre-sale articles are a great way to frame that to that avatar. Mm -hmm. So a, a, one of our biggest ways that we scale for clients is just writing and launching pre-sale articles. You know, Ezra's makeup brand, boom, we run the ads in that account. I think we're running 10 to 12 pre-sale articles right now, but they're all about different topics or different reasons that might lead someone to the product. Uh, but most people fail with pre-sale articles because they try to make them blog posts, right? <laughs> so our pre-sale articles, if you go to Boom by Cindy Joseph right now and look at our Facebook ad library, you can see all the pre-sale articles we're using. Most of them are five tips for makeup when you wear glasses, five tips for dealing with bags under your eyes, right? Here are five tips for transitioning from winter to spring makeup. <laughs> they all lead back to makeup, but they're all different topics and they're all only a few sentences long within each of the tips. So pre-sale articles are still huge for us. We're still optimizing for conversion and purchase there. Um, and I would say at least 80% of our e-com clients are using pre-sale articles uh, when they're more in scale mode. Um, now with e-com, you know, pre-sale, lead gen, direct to product page, 
of course, there's retargeting, of course, for using shop ads, right? Especially if it's a brand like we have a nail polish company and shop just crushes it for them because it's so easy to just go in and say, yes, I want, you know, these three bottles of nail polish check out. Those are really the main funnel styles that we're using when we're just looking at e-com. Now, when we start to layer in the info side, that's when things really get fun for us. So our biggest client that I was mentioning, surprisingly, their main front-end offer still is a free plus shipping book, which sounds really old school, but we're spending $30,000, $50,000 a day profitably on this dang book because there are great upsells, great cross-sells. So if you are in a place with an e-com business where you need to plan a flag and teach someone a concept that will then, you know, really get them excited to buy your products. Going old school with something like a free plus shipping book, we're seeing that work really, really well. Um, on the info side, we still run free mini classes. Um, we'll do that for e-commerce too. So a one video, two video, three part video series to teach someone a topic to give value first. We're still using old school lead magnets like for Smart Marketer right now, our best lead magnets are two really simple lead magnets. One is a Facebook ad report. So it's all of our best ads from the last 12 months in a swipe file because mm -hmm. people love that. And then guess what our second best one is? All of our best emails <laughs> in a swipe file uh, for people to use. So we're still using those old school, you know, quick downloadable, easy to consume, high value lead magnets that still let us generate, you know, $2 leads, which is pretty hard in, in 2023. So yeah, those are really the main funnels that come to mind right now. But I think that the biggest message for you all, even if you feel like I'm purely e-com, this is what I do. The secret yeah. sauce is to start mixing information on the front end. Um, otherwise, it's only so scalable, right? There will only be so many people in this world that you say, hey, I've got this sparkling water. Do you want it? There are just only so many people that are in that mindset that, yes, I want to buy it right now. But when you start the conversation in a different way, when you present the information in a different way, now you are applicable to so many more people that you can still lead them down to, to purchase. So... That's really how we're thinking right now. All right, all right. So only two more left and episode 204. So I had a chance to talk to Nick Shackelford. He's a marketing genius and he's uh, one of the founders of uh, Structured Agency. But uh, now he has multiple companies. And uh, why I really like this guy, because he really mastered how to partner up with uh, the right partner, the right business partners, how to work together very well and also how to know the strengths and weaknesses of uh, his, uh, his partners. But also he, he's just a super self-aware guy, so he really knows himself as well, his strengths and weaknesses. So yeah, he's probably the best guy to talk about business partnerships and how to think about this. So yeah, let's listen to him now. Huge. I, I, I don't think, and I'll just recap it. So structured, we have uh, three other partners, Nick, Jake, David, Chase. Mm -hmm. At Geek Out, Geek X, it was Nick, James. Constant, it was Nick, Jake. And Lucid, Nick, Aaron, Avin, was Calvin, now just Avin. Breeze, Nick, Avin, Aaron. So everything I've done. Every single thing I've done has been in a partnership. And I think there's two, two areas to this one at my core, at like my heart and my belief in who I am, I believe I'm an incredible partner and I know my role. I can identify the role I need to play. I can identify the things I need to execute. And I'm great at being a good conversationalist and I'm great at being good at dealing with the things that that other person doesn't want to deal with. Whether it's my personal life, whether it's with my fiance, whether it's my friends, I get it. I know where I need to play. Second, I believe if you, you need two things, and you're probably experiencing this now as a core person in your area, you need sales, 
You need the person that's driving new business and you need the person that's retaining new business. It's not just an agency stance. That's, that's anything on uh, the brand side too. I need to make sure I'm focused on acquisition. I need somebody else focused on retention or I need focus on culture. I need some focus on operations. And so I've been able to fall into the right role. And oftentimes my pairs, Jake, James, Alvin, uh, all these people are great operators, whereas I'm a great producer. So I'm mm -hmm. able to get the revenue. I'm able to find the right partnerships. And I and I just felt like you can go much faster, right? We've, yeah. we've been doing Geek Out for, and I'll keep saying Geek Out, even though we rebranded to GeekX, I keep saying Geek Out. Um, we've been doing Geek Out for eight years until we slowed down. And arguably, we were one of the fastest moving and most profitable small agency like there's different levels of this it's not an affiliate world it's not a traffic conversion but at the size that we were doing we were able to produce great revenue there's a reason why it happened is because he had the opposite of the business agency we're, we're pretty large we've had three acquisitions in the last uh two and a half years so mm -hmm. we've been able to put up some great numbers grow really fast because he knows his role and i know my role as jake and i having majority ownership of this before we uh, acquired uh, chase and david and amelia at the time so that that focus of speed which is not everybody's mo not everybody wants to do that for me it usually is so i like to go as fast as i can to let other people have and the final thing i'm really un i'm really not greedy like if there's the opportunity for a really big outcome I would like somebody to ride with me on that or be a part of that with me and we get there together because it's mm -hmm. just a little bit more fun in my opinion. Yeah. But I do, I will say, I do understand someone like yourself where you're like, you know what? I don't necessarily need anybody. I have this crazy deep belief that I can get most of these things done or I can hire out uh, into the areas that I'm not best at. I don't have to kind of give up equity. I can kind of compensate them cash or opportunity wise. Yeah, yeah. So do you think if you have partners, you can move faster? That's your experience? I wholeheartedly believe we've been able to move faster. Mm -hmm. uh, the, but let's say the correct partner, the wrong partner. Yeah. The wrong partner is the worst thing that could happen to you and your, your, your passion, your focus, yeah. your energy, all of the things. Yeah. So it's just one more thing that you can add or not. And I didn't, I haven't. Um, but if you add then it can go very well or very bad. So yeah, you have to pick the right partner. And finally, the last episode is 241. This was recorded uh, at the end of uh, last year, 23. So I talked to Steven Session, the CEO of Xero Shoes. And this is a almost nine figure per uh, year e-commerce company that he started more than 10 years ago, almost 15 years ago. And why he's special because he really mastered the thinking of being a contrarian and he's really okay with this. He's really confident with this. So yeah, let's listen to him, what he thinks about being a contrarian, why, he's, why it's completely okay and why this helps his brand grow and really stand out. And he will also talk about uh, how many newsletters they regularly send to their subscribers. I say to people, if you're going to write an ad for me, like a headline for Google ads, for example, um, and your head, your, and we want to test your headline against other headlines. If your first headline, the one that comes to you is something like the most comfortable shoes you've ever put on your foot, the next headline better be, don't buy these damn shoes. And then there yeah. should be another one saying, my wife hates me now. I mean, you've got to definitely, you know, play both angles in a way that, in a way that works because then you got to follow that up with something where people don't feel tricked. They feel like they know they got hooked, but they don't feel tricked, which is an interesting difference. Yeah. So yeah. anyway, so we have a whole post-sale sequence. Um, initially that happens when people buy and then we are sending out a newsletter every week we're trying to see if we can justify uh, more than once a week that's something that we didn't do for years because I was the only one doing things and I didn't have time and every every internet marketer that I know has stories of things that they should have done sooner because of how much money it made them when they started doing it and things they still haven't done even then they know it'll make them a bunch of money so that was the first one is you know just having a weekly newsletter and then um, we have sequences for people who have purchased more than X number of times. Um, we have sequences for people who haven't purchased in a while. We, of course, have a whole thing that we do when, we have, when we're launching new products or when we have a holiday sale. Um, so it's a pretty fleshed out campaign, uh, set of campaigns. But we're in the, in the phase now where we're bringing in more people who um, can just do 
more different, better, and test more iterations of things and see how things work. I mean, FYI, I don't know where you stand on this, but my favorite thing is uh, whenever someone says, here's the way to do it, I, I want to test the exact opposite. And, and related to that, there's a personality to our company. We, we always try to um, make people aware that these are human beings on the other end of the screen here. And so if you want to deal with us, you know, you can reach out and pick up the phone and call me directly. You can talk to our customer happiness team directly. And so the, because there's a personality to what we're doing, we don't want things to, you know, look too corporate. We don't, we want to look professional, but not, you know, like nameless, faceless, corporate, whatever. So putting that all together, my favorite thing is, uh, we, we brought some people on who said, well, here's what I think the design of your email should look like. A lot of graphics, really pretty, blah, blah, blah. I went split test that against just straight text. And of course the straight text won. not true for everybody, not true for every email, but, um, and in fact, it wasn't just straight text. There was one that was straight text, but one was just, you know, much, much simpler, just didn't look so clean frankly it just didn't look like everybody else so it's kind of like website design it's like well here's what's working because everyone's using shopify and it looks like this cool i definitely don't want to do that i don't want to look like everybody else because what we're doing is not like everybody else so there's there's a thing about consistency with who you are as a brand and then testing to see what works you know without so we're moving into this new phase of just testing getting more granular getting people to kind of choose their own adventure um getting them to self-identify so we know how to talk to them better instead of having just one message for everybody. Uh, although there's a lot of, again, consistency within that too. There's certain things that are that we say no matter who we're talking to, but there's yeah. some things where we can get more specific. Yeah, 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 I see. Um, by the way, plain text is interesting and uh, we are experimenting with this as well and we can see good results. Um, I think one thing uh, or, or you know, one, one factor really is the ego of the brand owner, you know? Because they love <laughs> they love beautiful design, right? Yeah. Any of that. And it doesn't matter if it converts a bit worse, they don't care, it looks nicer. Guys, I really hope that you enjoyed this longer than usual ecom show episode. And if you like this one or the previous 249 episodes, then make sure that you give a thumbs up on social and you leave a review on Spotify or Apple Podcasts or any kind of podcasting platform you use, it would, mer- it would mean the word to me because uh, we don't run any promotions, any ads to this podcast. Our growth is purely organic and I really hope that uh, we will stay together for the next 250 episodes as well and we will have even greater podcast guests and stories to hear from these wonderful people so thanks again everyone stay tuned and have a wonderful day